Israel Story is brought to you by Project Kesher. Project Kesher is a non-profit organization that empowers and invests in women. They develop Jewish women leaders and interfaith coalitions in Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, and Israel. They deliver Torahs to women who've never held one before, broadcast women's health information on Ukrainian public radio, and help Russian-speaking immigrants to Israel advocate for equal rights. Learn more at projectkeshir.org. This episode is also sponsored by Hands of Mothers. Hands of Mothers is a U.S. nonprofit organization that empowers vulnerable women in Rwanda through education and economic development. With schools in Rwanda closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Hands of Mothers is currently providing solar-powered radios to at-risk children so they can tune in and access the Ministry of Education's daily lesson broadcasts. For more information, go to handsofmothers.org. And now, to our episode. Hi, Alex. I am hearing absolutely nothing on the earphones. Okay. Ah, correct. Sorry, that's all me. Hey, 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 uh, hey. Hang on, miss. I'm going to call you back real quick. I spoke to Alex last week on what was one of the most blistering days yet this July. Okay, can you hear me now, Alex? Yes, I can. Hey, how are you doing? It's a bit hard out here, but overall I'm doing good. Unlike Alex, perhaps, Israel was not doing so well. Corona was once again spiking with nearly 2,000 new daily cases. Literally, as we were FaceTiming, the Israeli government was deliberating whether or not to impose new lockdown measures. I was at home, safe and sound. But Alex, he was on the front lines. Can you introduce yourself? With pleasure. My name is Alex Osnaya. I am 24 years old. I am originally from Mexico City. I am a new immigrant here in, in Israel. I've been here for three years now. And I live in Nesher, right next to Haifa. Alex is a soldier. A lone soldier, actually. His family is still in Mexico, but he made Aliyah in 2017 to join the IDF. I am a squad leader in the rescue brigade from Picuda Oref, from the Home Front Command. On day-to-day basis we are in battle lines, mostly in the Judea and Samaria. And where are you talking to me from? Right now we're in Ramod, Yerushalayim. So what, you might be wondering, is a combat soldier who's usually stationed in the West Bank doing in the middle of a sleepy residential neighborhood in Jerusalem? Well, you see, back in March, when Corona first hit Israel, the government thought that the army was well-suited to try and stop, or at least slow down, the spread of the virus. Here's another home front command soldier. An officer, actually. A major. Hey, Yochai. Hey, Mish. How's it going? You look cozy in the closet there. Yeah, talking to you from the closet, you look a little bit more comfortable in the recording studio. Yeah, I'm in Sela Weissblum's amazing uh, space here, <laughs> surrounded by lots of musical instruments. Nice. I am in uh, my closet, surrounded by my shirts and um, a few <laughs> pillows to muffle the sound a little bit. <laughs> that, of course, is Yochai Metal. You know him as the co-founder of our show, our senior producer. 
But what you perhaps don't know about him is that in his reserve duty, his miluim, Yochai is a platoon commander in the Home Front Command. So, Yochai, there's this idea that the pandemic is a grand equalizer, that we're all in it together. In fact, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this clip of Madonna that went viral in which she's talking about just that. That's the thing about COVID-19. It doesn't care about how rich you are, how famous you are, how funny you are, how smart you are. It's the great equalizer. And what's terrible about it is what's great about it. So what you don't see, since this is obviously a podcast, is that Madonna was delivering those inspirational musings from her bathtub, uh, filled with rose petals. (laughs) But is she right? In a way, yes. Um, But also, in a way, that sentiment couldn't be more more wrong, really. I mean, on, on the one hand, of course... The virus doesn't see race or gender or any of those things. It does see age. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, um, socioeconomic factors are directly tied to living situations and habits. And those in turn have an incredibly strong correlation with how susceptible you and your community are to the virus. Right, right. For example, in America, there's there's a lot of research that uh, came out showing that African-American communities are dying of covid as much as three times the rate of Caucasians. And and what was it like in Israel? Were there any um, groups that were uh, hit particularly hard? Yeah, so in Israel, there was one group that was uh, definitely hit much harder than the rest of the groups, and that was the Haredi community, the ultra-Orthodox community. Okay, and why was that? Well, first of all, I should say, when, when the pandemic started, it was really seen by them, by everybody really, as, as sort of something that was a foreign entity, um, it was coming from the East. It was coming from China. And the uh, Haredi community, they saw themselves as basically in a, in, in a really good position because they're such an insular community. They have no connection to the outside world by design. And their thinking, they were, you know, pretty safe uh, from this virus. They weren't really in any kind of uh, serious threat. Um, and that reflected itself in, in how they um, went about their business. They took it pretty lightly. There are also a, a lot of other factors that have to do with how insulated they are from the media. So things didn't really trickle down to them. Things that were on the media, on the news, on social media, on Facebook, just didn't really make it through to the Haredi community. Mm-hmm. Many of them don't even have uh, you know, smartphones. Uh, they're not on any kind of social media in a meaningful way. They stick to their own sort of media, media outlets. Uh, a major way of... of um, Reading the news or getting the news in, in the Haredi community is actually through Pashkvilim, which are sort of these bulletin boards where they literally paste, um, you know, written pamphlets with, uh, with sort of the news of the day. Mm-hmm. So um, it really took a lot longer for them to, to get all the information that the rest of the country was getting. And remember, the information was coming fast. Things were changing on a you know, daily, even hourly basis. And I remember that there were also some major rabbis who said that the best protection against getting sick was coming to to these mass prayers. Right, there were there were a bunch of big mass prayers in the beginning. Some rabbis also s- declared that schools should go on, that the yeshivas should go on. That was the sentiment in the beginning, but uh, I mean, pretty quickly, they found out that they were very, very wrong. 
And indeed, early on, many of the COVID-19 epicenters were in Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox, communities. So soldiers like Alex were mobilized. They left their weapons behind and were deployed on an unusual mission. Coming out to the Haredi population and making sure that they know how to protect themselves from COVID-19. They recited social distancing guidelines, told people to wear masks, and ultimately also enforced curfews. But if you imagine soldiers and policemen just chatting away with Haredim on street corners, telling each other Yiddish jokes, think again. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Our episode today is something new for us. Kind of an experiment, really. It's an attempt to cut through all the layers of mediation and editorializing that have characterized the coverage of the Haredi community during the pandemic. Instead, we're going to try to give you a taste of their own experience, as they saw it, and in their words. As you just heard in that snippet a moment ago, there were sadly many confrontations between law enforcement and local Haredim. Some of them turned quite violent. And the media, of course, reported extensively on these clashes, and on the skyrocketing number of COVID cases among the ultra-Orthodox. And this negative media coverage, did that um, have an effect on what the general public thought? Did it sort of spill over? Well, I was actually wondering the same thing. So I, I reached out to Aweka Zena, the National Anti-Racism Coordinator for the Department of Justice, um, and I asked him just that. He was um, expecting to sort of be out of work because he thought everybody's at home, so what kind of complaints could they have about discrimination? But um, he was really surprised to receive really a huge amount of uh, complaints from from Haredim. Mm-hmm. We received uh, th- three times more than the regular time, you know. More than three times the amount of complaints uh, for the equivalent uh, time frame last year. Wow, that's interesting. So what, what kind of complaints was he getting? Everything from people sort of avoiding them on the street to really, uh, you know, blatant uh, discrimination like uh, Haredim uh, being uh, put in separate wards in hospitals, job discrimination, Haredim losing their jobs. Uh, there were stories of Haredim not being served at uh, stores and businesses. And Yochai, we keep on saying uh, Haredim. Can you just explain for our listeners who don't know what that is, <laughs> what we mean? Well, I mean, that's a really good question, Mishi, because uh, they're not one cohesive group. Haredim are ultra-Orthodox Jews. They tend to be much more conservative in their interpretation of Judaism. But aside from that, aside from that, the fact that they're very Orthodox Jews and their Judaism is sort of the, the central part of their identity, it's really hard to put them in one group. So it's kind of hard for me to answer your question. I mean, some of the groups are Zionists. Some of them are uh, anti-Zionists. Some of them are sort of uh, Zionist tolerant, maybe you could say. Mm -hmm. It's hard to bunch them all in in one group. Over the years, we've obviously told many stories of Haredim on our show. But most of them were about Haredim that belong to the more open-minded parts of the community. Folks who don't mind interacting with and opening up to the outside world. Yeah, that's true. 
I think maybe one thing we should say is that the word Haredi, it, it comes from the word fear. What they fear is they fear a loss of tradition. They're very protective of the old way of life. To that extent, you know, the, the outside world, and we represent secular media to them, is very uh, circumspect. It's very, they're very suspicious about people like us. Uh, because we represent a world that's, uh, you know, that's modern and changing and everything that they are sort of, you know, trying to fight against. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy to, to get these people to talk. And you spoke to a lot of these people during lockdown over the phone. Right, right. How did you reach out to them? How did you talk to them? So while we were in quarantine, uh, Marie Ruder and, uh, and I, we reached out through all kinds of, of leads, anything we could find, really. So NGO, there were a few NGOs working within the Haredi community that uh, put us in touch with different Haredi people. I talked to Haredi reporters who put me in touch with their contacts. You know, bit by bit, we got to all kinds of interesting people who are willing to talk to us. Yochai, lastly, um, this is a different kind of piece for us because it's not really a story with a central character and um, a plot, but rather it's really just a collage of voices of Haredim um, telling their experiences during lockdown. Yeah, it's true. This is, I mean, we always say that we're a non-political show, and it's true, we do we do try and sort of um, never uh, explicitly take a stance on different political issues. But the truth is that we do have we do have our our beliefs and our ideology as a as a show, and that belief is that every human perspective is important, and every voice is important, and uh, we wanna we wanna really bring those voices, especially when those voices are harder to hear, when they're softer. So when this pandemic hit and the Haredi community was ridiculed and blamed for it, I really I really felt that we have a kind of um, obligation to help bring their story from their perspective. So without further ado, here is Yochai and Marie's Givalt. Hello. Hi, thanks for thanks for talking to us. I'm a journalist for Israel Story, where a radio show That's okay, so what do you want? Could you introduce yourself? My name is Chaim Taisel-Boy. I'm a psychotherapist. I have a master's degree in art therapy. I have 13 children. Eight are married already. Menachem Toker, celebrating 25 years of uh, Jewish media here in Israel. I have a daily radio show in uh, Radio Kochai. My name is Shai Glick. I'm CEO of Betzalmo. Betzalmo is a human rights organization in spiritual Jewish. In the beginning, uh, the Haredi community, they didn't really actually know what's going on over here because they are not exposed to the main Israeli media. People say it's not us, it's not connection to us. We are close community in close places. We not have connection to this. The whole culture is to be together at, at weddings and uh, synagogues and yeshivot. All the schools, all the synagogues was open and very, very crowded. And then people say something getting very strange. We listen to the rabbis and we got sick. 
Then something started to change. A lot of Wabai came and he said, you have to listen to the, the doctors. You have to listen to what the health minister saying. Close the schools, close the schools. You have to close everything. To tell Haredi not to go to the shul, to the synagogue, to daven, to pray, this is, it never happened. Even in the Holocaust, they didn't stop praying. But it was already a little bit late. The government said we have to take control about it, and they bring like, the IDF soldiers to the Pnebrak. Pnebrak, where I live, was the first city in Israel that was put under full lockdown. Israeli police put up metal barricades and roadblocks on the fact Friday. That this is one of the most dense places uh, in Israel. 38% of Bnei Brak's 200,000 residents have fallen ill. Bnei is the, the, the capital city of the Haredim community in Israel. And in Bnei was hundreds of people sick. The community was in very, very big crisis. And because of that, people was very, very ate Haredim and ate Bnei all the Haredim guilty. It became so bad, the Lashon Ara, you know. And then the media came. The Haredim need to understand that they have to accept the state. For better or for worse. Let me finish. I would like to say that it is most of the Haredim. They always talk against us. Everything bad. One guy said we have to take all the Haredim and throw them back to Poland. Can Yeshok? Here we have the rule of law, and you obey the law of the land. This doesn't suit you. Shalom. Goodbye. Go back to the shtetl in Eastern Europe. It's real anti-Semitic what I hear. It's like in Germany they talk. They humiliate women on the streets, on buses, they don't work because the state just hands them money. What do we expect now with the corona? The Haredis have gone wild again. They don't give a damn about the law or the guidelines. They spit on police officers. But we're just going to keep supporting them, keep giving them the best medical treatment, keep serving in the army instead of them. We're the asses of these messianic crazies. And the Haredim was feeling like, you know, let's say like what the black people feel now. There's this really uncomfortable underlying feeling as if we're all lepers, as if the virus is our fault. They patrol the streets and enforce the curfew as if we're in the Spanish Inquisition or something. It's not a nice feeling. Anybody would find it uncomfortable. People look at us with fear in their eyes. You know, when they pass us on the street, they sort of keep their distance. They're sick. You can't get close to them. If there's a Haredi come, you just run away. When I walk in the street, I see people walking away from me. And it's not that I'm not wearing a mask and gloves. I can't even describe how horrible it feels. Here, in our country, it's really, really hard. A real feeling of humiliation. 
Just before Pesach, during the peak of this crisis, there was a serious egg shortage. And people need eggs for Pesach. So we heard about a place in Kfar Saba that was selling wholesale. I rushed over there, waited in line, and I was simply ignored. As if I wasn't there. I decided to organize a virtual prayer service during Pesach because all the synagogues have been closed. So I took the initiative to put together a holiday prayer live stream. We set up and started praying, and all of a sudden the police showed up. The officer climbed onto the roof of our building and jumped down onto our porch and barged in, like some special ops mission. One of the guys that was filming the prayer was so shocked that he burst into tears. There is no doubt in my mind that B'nai Brak was one of the places where people most obeyed the restrictions. A week or two after the outbreak, the Omni was cancelled. Um, people were governing from the, the house, or they made, you know, minyanim through um, porches. It was very, very special, you know, to experience it. All the neighbors went to the porch and everybody had uh, minyanim through a couple businesses in the porch. During the holiday, all the families with kids went out to their balconies and sang Manishtana so that the young couples, those without kids, or the old people who were stuck at home alone, could hear it too. Haredim change the, the, the mind and they change the act. When they start something, it's all the way. When the Rabbanim, when the rabbis say something to do, they will do it. I never let my children go into my house because I was afraid. And that's about me. I was afraid it can be the worst thing that a child can kill his father. So you don't miss people? You don't miss going to the koilel, going to shul? I don't need to meet the people. I have books. I can I can be here day and night. I can look at my books. I have the best friends are the books. And you're not lonely? No. The time is too little for me. I, I learned Dafyoini. You know what Dafyoini is? They start to wear masks, they, they start to have gloves, they start to close all the schools, all the schools, and the age still continue. This was the big, the big problem. The Haredim say, oh, now why you hate me? I changed my mind, I changed my life. I now in, in, in a big crisis myself, my community. I have people sick and, and you hate me now when i sick, I need your help. Give me your hands. The Haredic people, they have a uh, 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 big minuses, of course, that they're not perfect. They, you could criticize the Haredi crowd, but, but when you come with hate, when you come with um, 
anger. When you see somebody in the sea that is not is not breathing and is, is almost dying, you're not telling oh, you don't know to, how to swim, so why you went in? You're taken out from the water. The Haredim was, was in a big shock. Why, why the aid doesn't go in away? What is it like being a mother of 13 in lockdown? It's hard. hard. The children don't go to school. Also in terms of employment, there is no work. Every house has like seven, eight to nine people with two, three bedrooms. The people are very, very crowded, very tzafuf. How do you say tzafuf? Let's just say it isn't easy to be with six kids at home. It's really difficult. But God bless. It's really scary. We don't know when it'll end. And there's a lot of tension and arguments at home because of this fear. So, during Purim, my son went to visit family in Bnei Brak. And when he was walking on the street, he saw police officers beating up a Haredi teenager. So he took out his phone and started filming. And three seconds later, the police officers came up to him and started beating him up, too. Really pounding him. One of the officers grabbed him by his payas and he yanked one of his side curls out. To rip out a Haredi kid's payas? It's something that hasn't been touched since his childhood. It's like part of his body, like an organ. It's unfathomable. It's robbing him of his innocence, his belief in humanity. And it changed him. He's not like he used to be. For me as a mother, it's... What can I tell you? I hear many stories about the police, but I didn't believe it. I'm really afraid. Even when I just go out to buy some milk or bread, as soon as I hear sirens, I hide in the store. I'm afraid that they could catch me and beat me up. Is there anything else that you would like to tell or to say? Something that I didn't ask you and you feel like it's important? I want to say one thing. I have this dream that we'll just stop using all these stereotypes. Religious, secular, Haredi. In the end, we're all... We're all human beings. All equal. We have to look with good eyes. You know, in Hebrew we say, we call it Ayn Tova. Good eye. You have two eyes. Look with good eye, not with a bad eye. We don't see eye to eye on everything. We can agree or disagree on things. But at the end of the day, we live together. The fact that we're different doesn't mean we have to be at war with each other. The Haredi community will stay the same nice, kosher community. What will change is that they are a bit more open to the social media now, to the internet. I just want to wish us all one thing, that we all make an effort to live in peace, show more love and compassion towards one another, and live to see the coming of the Mashiach. I want to wish everybody you know, complete recovering from this uh, disease. Thank you very much. 
בשמחה רבה. ביי, God bless you. תודה רבה חברים, המשך האזנה מהנה. תודה רבה רבה, גם רציתי להגיד את זה ברעיון שלי. תודה רבה. So, Yochai, what was working on this piece like for you? What, uh, what did you learn? First of all, I learned how difficult it is for, for a community that's so tight-knit to separate itself all of a sudden like that. And what a valiant effort they did to actually do that once they realized what was going on. And the prices, the heavy prices they paid. I learned how lockdown affects people very differently. Lockdown is not the same for uh, you know, a young couple with uh, one kid or a bachelor living alone or with some roommates as it is for a mother of uh, you know, six, seven, 13 kids. Another thing I learned is you know, these people were very positive. Even when I talked to them and I talked to remember, I talked to people who had very strong complaints. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I reached them. Even those people, uh, at the end, all of them felt it was very important to end with a positive message and a hopeful message that we can all learn to get along better. And, you know, mm-hmm. they'll never just complain. They'll say, you know, it's very, very hard, but uh, Baruch Hashem. So that was really inspiring for me. Being myself stuck with three kids at home and very much uh, full of, uh, you know, self-pity. <laughs> that story was produced by Yochai Meital, together with our amazing production intern, Marie Rude. Ari Jacob wrote and performed the original music. We don't usually thank the interviewees in our stories, but this time's different. Since for many of them, talking to the media, especially to non-Haredi media, isn't a trivial matter. So thank you, Ruli Dikman, Tova Henig, Judah Sabiner, Chaim Teitelbaum, Yuda Shalit, Menachem Toker, Shai Glik, and many others who prefer to remain anonymous. A special thanks to Aweke Zena, the National Anti-Racism Coordinator for the Department of Justice, who was incredibly helpful throughout the process of putting this piece together. Before we sign off, let's check back in with Sergeant Alex Osnaya, the Home Front Command squad leader, patrolling the streets of Ramot. His assignment, like that of many other soldiers, was really a bit strange. After all, Haredim don't, by and large, go into the army. In fact, some of them are quite hostile towards the army. So Alex wasn't sure how it would all go down. I thought I would be getting things thrown at me or like getting shouted from the other side of the street stuff like what is the army doing here get out of this place I can tell you that as soon as they see us coming they're like oh oh and they put on the face mask or they go to another place so what do you do do you do you go and knock on people's doors or what where how do you how do you convey this information no 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 we do not go into people's homes we are going 
close to supermarkets, to hospitals, to clinics. And how do the Haredim receive the soldiers? So far, so good. We have not had any problems like, what are you doing here? Or why, why is the army coming into a neighborhood? Not at all. You're not Haredi, right? I am not. I am a secular Jew, I, I would say. And is this the first time that you've had significant interaction with uh, with Haredim? Yes. I can say that it's nothing like I would have expected. I Not at all. They, like, for real are taking us the way we are and letting us do what we are intending to do, which is to help them. And they're cooperating also, which I think is fantastic. In order to ease communications, the army even issued a Hebrew-Yiddish phrasebook. Do you know Yiddish? I took three years of German in high school. I would not, not say I speak German, but I may understand a couple words from Yiddish, like Ich spreche Deutsch, Ich, ich spreche Yiddish. It's like similar, but not the same thing, I would say. In Mexico City, there are some Yiddish schools, right? Well, I can tell you that my late grandma was a Yiddish teacher. Wow. And do your parents speak Yiddish? My mom does, but I I never heard, heard her speak other than Oi Weismir or Oi Meierschein. <laughs> I have a Yiddish mama at the end of the day. This episode was the third in our COVID-19 miniseries, Alone, Together. You can hear the previous two episodes of the series, and all our past episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. And while you're at it, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter so that you never miss an episode. Of course, I'm reminding you once again to join our members-only Facebook community, where the conversation never ends. We have great debates, we discuss episodes, we share behind-the-scenes extras, and mainly, we just have a good time. Joining is, of course, easy. Go to Facebook, search for Israel Story Community, and join. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. It's a unique way to both advertise your organization or your company, and especially during these extremely challenging times, also support the work we do. Thanks to Yoav Orot, Shlomo Meital, Dafna Bareket, Judah Kaufman, Yair Ettinger, Tony Felsen, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagg, and Joy Levitt. As always, this episode was mixed by Sela Weissblum and sound designed and scored by Joel Shupak with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Liva, Yoshi Fields, Joel Shupak, Skyler Inman, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. 
Abby Adler, Marie Rude, and Carly Rubin are our wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro from the Podglomerate is our marketing director. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very soon with part four of Alone Together. When I answered the phone, I told him, Daddy, this is Friday night. Why are you calling? He wasn't really breathing well, so he was really hard for him to say the words. So he started crying and he said that he loves us. So till next time, stay safe, shalom shalom, and yalla bye. <laughs>
ומה אתה רוצה שנלמד מזה, ואיך נדע להתאחד בפירוד הזה? שמע ישראל השם אחד ושמו אחד.